reading from Matthew 27. Matthew 27, 45 to 54. Matthew 27, 45, we'll read down to verse 54. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we come before you this evening because of the death of Christ. Lord, we pray and ask that through your Spirit, you may remind us of not only of the reality of the death of Christ, but the the things that we receive, the precious gift that we receive through the death of our Lord and Savior. We pray that you may encourage us. We pray that for anyone who may be here or even watching online, Lord, that who does not know you, Jesus, as his personal or her personal Lord and Savior, that you may convict and prick the conscience and lead him or her to believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the centurion and those who were with him at the end, after witnessing and experiencing all these things that had taken place at the death of Jesus Christ, he came to this realization that this was indeed the Son of God. And he was. He was indeed the Son of God. And if you, read the old, if you read the New Testament, if you read specifically the Gospels, you see many evidences that point to Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Jesus, who came down from heaven, born of a virgin, lived as a, as a human being without sin, without committing iniquity, totally perfect. And yet towards the end of his ministry on earth, arrested, tried, crucified to a cross and died on that cross. There are many things right in his life that point to us 
this identity as Jesus Christ, as the Son of God, from his miracles, from healing the blind to, uh, to healing the leper to raising the dead back to life, to even his teachings and his perfect life, we see that this was, in fact, the Son of God. And yet, here he is towards the end of his life, crucified as a criminal, executed as a criminal. And Jesus, as we know, was innocent, blameless, spotless, completely righteous. But the gospel tells us that as innocent as he was, he went to the cross to die on the cross for our sins. He took our iniquities. He took our sins upon himself so that anyone who believes in him may be spared from the judgment of God and be declared righteous by God. So what I'd like to do in this evening as I is just walk through this passage and just focus on some of these or all of these signs that we see surrounding the death of Jesus Christ and reflect on these signs and even see just what's, what's there for us. What are these, how do these things point us to the death of Christ? What do we glean from these things as they point us to the death of Christ? So we see first that the Son of God suffers. Jesus on the cross as he's hanging there cries out to God, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus throughout his life is considered to be many things. He's considered to be a criminal, right? We see this through his arrest and through his trial and through his crucifixion. Jesus is considered by many to be a blasphemer just by his outlandish claims to be the Son of God, to be even God himself. Jesus is at times considered to be demon-possessed, a lunatic, deranged. He's even considered to be, but none other actually, than Pilate himself as the king of the Jews. And even here in this passage, people have their own way of describing Jesus. As he's crying out to God, asking, where is God? The people thinking that he's calling out to an Old Testament prophet Elijah, they say, this man is calling out to Elijah. This man, they call him. And yet his words from the cross indicate to us that Jesus is more than just a man. We're going to stand him to be not only the, the man, Christ Jesus, but also to be the Son of God, who is Christ Jesus. But as he's crying out from the cross... And as he's quoted in this Old Testament passage, he's not just a man, but he's also a man who suffered. Jesus, in crying out to God, he's actually quoting Psalm 22. And Psalm 22 reads this, beginning in verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. 
They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. So the context of this psalm is that the psalmist is surrounded by these enemies, by these evildoers, by individuals who want nothing but the destruction of the psalmist. The psalmist is abandoned. He's alone. There's nobody there to plead his case. There's nobody there to, to, to deliver him. And so that is the very psalm that Jesus is quoting here from the cross as he's being crucified. Based on the fact that Jesus is quoting this Old Testament psalm and just giving his current, his current plight, makes this psalm messianic, right? Even though the author who wrote the psalm, right, it didn't, wasn't even aware of the Messiah, wasn't aware of Christ, that this would be pointing to Jesus Christ, but the fact that Christ quotes this psalm makes this psalm messianic, pointing to Christ. I love how the Lord Jesus, even as he's crucified, is in a way, teaching us how to read our Bibles. Jesus, right, in a similar way to the psalmist, is also surrounded by enemies, blasphemers, mockers, Roman soldiers, with nobody there to deliver him, nobody there to plead his case, calling out to God, but there is no answer. There are, right, his, his mother witnessing the crucifixion of Christ. There's the beloved disciple also witnessing the crucifixion of Christ. But they can't do anything to help the Lord Jesus. So Jesus is surrounded by enemies, abandoned, alone. The angels who once ministered to Jesus after 40 days and 40 nights of fasting in the wilderness and being tempted by the devil, those same angels were not there in the crucifixion to minister to the Lord Jesus. The angel who was there to strengthen Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane as he was agonizing and praying to God, Lord, if it be your will, please remove this cup from me. That angel is nowhere to be found. The father who once affirmed his love for his sons from heaven is silent. So the only thing that Jesus hears and even feels in this hour of his crucifixion is absolute silence. However, there is hope in this psalm. Jesus knew the psalm. Obviously, he quotes the psalm. He knew the psalm very well. In fact, any Hebrew who knew his Old Testament would have known the psalm. They would have known that there is hope in this psalm. There's hope of vindication. There's hope of deliverance. And so I think that the very fact that Jesus is crying out to God in, during his crucifixion, quoting this psalm, means that he has hope. And Jesus knows the outcome. Right? He knows it better than anybody else. And, even though, and this is just something that might happen in the future, but this is a guaranteed hope, a guaranteed deliverance. But even though Jesus knew the outcome at the end of his suffering, it doesn't take away from the pain of absence. When I was on vacation and I was 
going to a conference for a couple days, gone from 8 a.m. to about 9.30, 10 p.m. Right, my, one of my daughters was, would cry at night because she hadn't seen me all day. Even though she knew to expect me, she knew that she would see me again. It doesn't remove the pain of absence. Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus, who is God, Jesus, who had this wonderful fellowship, this intimate communion with God and with the Holy Spirit from before the foundations of the earth, this perfect fellowship where there is nothing but love. The pain of the Father's absence would have been absolutely shattering and agonizing. In this psalm, in Psalm 22, also speaks of the agony of the innocent sufferer. The psalmist can have hope because he understands and knows that he is innocent. And again, this is the quote that Jesus is saying from the cross. I think, again, understanding that he is also in a similar situation, innocent, though crucified. In fact, even Pilate himself, who handed Jesus over to the Jews to be crucified, had even declared to the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. The New Testament also affirms in 1 Peter 2.22, where it says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. So the person who said that this man is crying out for Elijah, he's right. This is a man. But more than that, he's an innocent man. He's a suffering man. But suffering on behalf of his people. But then there's some things that are happening surrounding the death of Jesus Christ. Verse 45 tells us that from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And this wasn't some natural darkness, but this was a supernatural darkness. Some supernatural occurrence was happening. There was a darkness over all the land for three hours. This is actually, I think, I cannot help but think of the, uh, the Israelites fighting in Canaan. And then Moses, right, having to lift up his hands. And as long as his Hands were raised, the battle was raging on, and were fighting victorious, and there was the standing, the, the, the sun not setting, remaining still for hours. Although now we have the opposite, where there's a darkness covering the land for three hours. Which, if you think about it, is quite, it's quite fitting. The Gospel of John describes Jesus as the light of the world. This is the brilliant light that shines through the darkness that Jesus is the light of man. So it's fitting that a darkness should cover the entire land as we see the light of the world being snuffed out. Supernatural darkness over all the land for these three hours, I think, could even be likened to the extreme indignation that God the Father has toward the slaying of his son on the cross. Supernatural darkness could even be pointing us to the ferocious wrath of God towards sin 
as it's painted for us so vividly in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. John 3.19 tells us, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. So I think it's actually quite fitting that the world should be covered in the darkness that the world has come to love and embrace. And yet here is Jesus, as there is darkness over all the land for three hours, crying out to God. And as, this, as there is this supernatural phenomenon happening, yes, the Father has withdrawn his intimate presence from the presence of Jesus Christ, but this supernatural darkness, I think, also tells us that even though God has withdrawn his absence, he knows very well what's happening. He sees and he understands, and he knows. And then finally, Jesus, the innocent man, Jesus, the Son of God, finally dies. He gives up his life on the cross. So the Son of God suffers, and the Son of God dies. And then surrounding his death, there are more signs, really strange and really peculiar signs. It tells us in the passage that at the death of Jesus Christ, the earth shook and the rocks were split. Perhaps, maybe, a sign of the judgment of God. And if you read the Old Testament, earthquakes were oftentimes a sign of the wrath of God. In fact, there was one particular occasion when the earth itself opened up to swallow up sinners. Maybe, perhaps, because these mockers, these crucifiers, were unwilling to bow down and revere the Son of God, maybe this was God's way of forcing the crowds, of forcing these enemies of the cross to lie prostrate before the Son of God. Half of God's people for their sins. But now this tearing of the curtain in the temple tells us that what was once hidden is now revealed. We have unrestricted access to God. And the Word tells us that Jesus is the fullest revelation of God. Moses had once asked God, let me see your glory. And he was able to see just a little bit of it. Now if anyone desires to see the glory of God, they need only to look at Jesus Christ. And we see the, the, the height of his glory and his earthly ministry at the cross. Hebrews 10.12 says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 19, There have this full assurance of faith, which leads us to have this confidence to come before the throne of God. And through the death of Christ, Jesus has also become our faithful high priest who intercedes for us. And this tearing of the curtain also symbolizes for us that there is now no separation between Jew and Gentile. And no matter where you come from, 
no matter where you are, no matter what language you speak, no matter what your ethnicity is, that anybody who believes, anybody who calls out to the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved prior to the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. These were individuals who were considered righteous and Jews from the dead and appeared to many. And I'm reminded of the conversation that Jesus had with Martha after the death of her brother Lazarus. And Jesus tells her that I am the resurrection and the life. Everyone who believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And everyone who believes in me and lives will never die again. Or will never die. It's absolutely amazing that anybody who believes in Jesus, even though he dies, yet he shall live. And anyone who believes in Jesus and though he still lives, will never die. I think Jesus means that if anybody lives at the second coming of Jesus Christ, they're still living, that that person will never die. It says, never die. Literally, never die means never die. And if you're wondering, well, maybe, well, wonder what the, what, the old, what, the, what the original language, I wonder what the Greek says, because sometimes things are lost in translation. Well, I'll tell you what it says. It says, never die. In fact, it's a double negative. And double negatives, they don't cancel each other out. It's there for emphasis. It's an emphatic never. Those who believe in Jesus will never die. Whether you die or you see Jesus and you continue to live, I don't know which was better, to die and to be able to rise again or to just never taste death. Well, the point is, that those who believe in Jesus will never die. Live forever. I mean, this is a precursor to the, to the future resurrection that every believer has in Jesus Christ. It's a really peculiar sign, but there's another sign that I think is the most startling of all. Verse 54. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Here are these soldiers who put a crown of thorn on Jesus flogged him, disfigured Jesus, nailed him to a cross, were gambling for his clothes as he hung on the cross, mocking him, jeering at him. They see these things happening, experience these things happening, and they come to the conclusion that this was, in fact, the Son of God. I mean, can you imagine perhaps the fear and perhaps even the guilt that must have filled their hearts to come to this realization that they have just crucified, that they have just killed the Son of God. But the good news of the gospel is that you can't kill Jesus. You can't kill him. Not permanently anyway. 
And maybe, hopefully, they found some hope after the resurrection of Jesus. I have no idea. But the thing is, is that these Roman soldiers were not the only ones who, who were bearing responsibility for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Every single person, past, present, or future, bears responsibility for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. As Jesus, the Son of God, came into the world to die on the cross for the sins of his people. The reason why there is sin in the world is because there are people in the world and people are full of sin. But if there was no sin to begin with, then there would be no need for Jesus Christ to die on the cross. But Jesus came and he paid the penalty for our sins. And everyone who believes in Jesus be declared innocent, blameless, righteous, be given the gift of eternal life, receive adoption as a son or daughter of God. And for the unbeliever, there's still guilt and sin remaining. Because if you don't have your sins paid for by someone else, well then, right, you have to pay the sin yourself. The Bible teaches that it's going to take an eternity to pay off that debt of sin. But the goodness of the gospel is that if anyone believes in Jesus, will have their debt completely forgiven. will be considered righteous, blameless, innocent, because Jesus Is the Son of God, and His righteousness through faith is credited to the account of the one who believes in Him. And that person's sin, the debt of sin, is credited to the account of Jesus. And Jesus paid for that entire debt. And so, this is the good news of the gospel. Yes, the death of Jesus Christ is absolutely tragic, but it is also a cause for rejoicing because of the amazing things that we receive through the death of Christ. Christ died for us. Christ died for you. And so we worship him and we praise the Lord for that. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we could have done nothing to deserve such a wonderful and amazing sacrifice on our behalf. We thank you, Lord, that you have loved us even while sinners. Father, we pray that through your spirits that we may continue to trust in Christ, that we may rejoice at the gospel we may continue to reflect on Christ dying for sinners. We thank you, God. We thank you for all that you have given to us through the death of your Son. And we are especially grateful that you also rose him from the dead three days later. We thank you, Lord. We worship you. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.